chefs with egos, worker exploitation, domestic violence, love, art, and pie. All of these things loom large in Lisa Donovan's memoir, Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger. We'll be talking to her right here on Tip of the Tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Lisa Donovan has redefined what it means to be a Southern baker as the pastry chef to some of the South's most influential chefs, including Margot McCormick, Tandy Wilson, and Sean Brock. She served her church cakes and pies to finish fine dining experiences, and she has been formative in establishing a technique-driven and historically rich narrative of Southern pastry. She received a James Beard Award for her writing in Food and Wine, and she has also been a featured speaker at Renee Redzepi's globally renowned MAD Symposium. Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger is her first book, and it releases tomorrow. And we are so excited to have you with us, Lisa. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's going to be a great talk. I hope so. I really do. And I I actually don't have any doubt that it will be. I'm really (laughs) looking forward to talking to you. Uh, So I, I wanted to ask you, because you are so young, why it was that you were motivated to uh, write basically a memoir. Well, thank you for saying I'm so young. That's a nice, uh, that's a nice boost. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, you know, I think, I think oftentimes, um, you know, it's interesting. That's an actually an interesting question because I did get a little bit of uh, guff from some folks, uh, not to my face, but sort of, you know, the, the murmurs that you hear that go on behind your back about like, oh, who does she think she is writing a memoir? And you got to live a little bit longer and you got to you got to really have more of a life story. But I think uh, a really important aspect of memoir is especially for marginalized people, for people that walk around this earth always trying to maneuver something greater than them. And in this case, you know, misogyny and patriarchy and a, a very sort of uh, uh, antiquated system that we all move around in in this country that I think we're trying to sort of break apart. I think also a really important part of memoir is less about this is the great life I lived and let's talk about the impact I had on the world and sometimes great memoir or good memoir or important memoir and I hope this book falls into any of those categories <laughs> is, is to talk about how the world affected you um, to sort of create a space where storytelling can connect, uh, not only connect people, but also transcend something, you know, break through some ideas, break through some bigger problems, questions, concerns that the, you know, that the world offers. And so I think in, in this case, for me, it felt timely to sort of start telling some 
stories in my life that I felt might actually help move the needle of the conversation a little bit for women. I think, for instance, not to just jump into the deep end right before we even get too far into a conversation, but, you know, I mean, I don't think women ever get uh, are offered or provided a space to talk about things like rape and abortion in a way that is part of their own narrative <clears throat> instead of, you know, standing in a courtroom uh, trying to convince the world that what they're saying is true. So this is a real, uh, I think, act of sort of, I don't know, freedom uh, and uh, gave me some space as a middle-aged woman to sort of get comfortable having my story centered so that other women could maybe center their stories as well. Well, I have to tell you, my background is that I'm a lawyer and uh, I graduated from law school way back in 1974. And in those days, there weren't many women lawyers practicing. So I, I was really resonating with some of the experiences that you had, some of the work experiences and the familiarity that male lawyers felt that they could take with me, even to telling me things like one judge who wouldn't let me in his courtroom because I was pregnant. I mean, I was obviously pregnant, and he thought that it was unseemly to have a pregnant woman practicing law. And oh, my God. I also got picked up by one lawyer who just decided that I was, you know, bothering him, so he picked me up and moved me out of the room. So oh, wow. I, 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 I totally identify with so many Incredible. of the things that you talked about, and it's really interesting because I was trying to set it in time, and it's still so raw for me to read that, what you wrote, mm-hmm. because it just brings up my own feelings, but also that it's still happening now is so... Mm-hmm makes me so angry and frustrated mm-hmm. that it just continues on. It's a very annoying. Well, and I think you know, part of, I think part of my rationale for deciding to sort of get very comfortable very quickly, because, uh, you know, I think women of a certain age and a certain generation, we always were taught, you know, you just put your head down and you just get to work and you, you can either circumnavigate or try to subvert the system. Uh, but really what you, you know, I, I arrived at a place where I realized that I was actually just contributing to the longevity of these, you know, <laughs> of, of these instances uh, for the women that were coming up behind me. And so I think part of the reason why it's so important to start saying these things out loud is so that, you know, we can normalize the fact that these are things that um, have happened in the past and continue to happen in some uh, like arenas of everyone's industry. And the more that we can just sort of, you know, pull the cloak off and bring it fully into the light, the less likely we'll have to feel like we have to individually and quietly and privately manage these sorts of things as if it's our shame. Um, And a lot of this for me was undoing sort of that internalized responsibility I had for other people's really shitty behavior, (laughs) which I think is what a lot of women do, you know, especially a lot of women, you know, of certain generations and certain ages. And I sort of consider myself in between, you know, an older generation of women and this younger generation of women who are seemingly like incredibly uh, self-aware and intolerant of things that you should be rightfully intolerant of. And so I gained a lot of inspiration just like meeting some younger women who were coming up under me in kitchens who, you know, held 
not only the 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 business accountable, but held me accountable too to the things I was sort of either uh, inadvertently or distractedly contributing to, or just ignoring outright. You know, so this this for me felt like a really great moment to sort of have both feet, you know, both feet, both feet in in both sort of generations where I can understand like this generation who's older than me of women who are still sort of you just keep your mouth shut get your head down but get to work you know and then this younger generation of like actually I could work better if you guys could stop treating me this way Mm -hmm. (laughs) it felt really important for me to get out of that um to get out of that system and really think about how to address it and as a writer it just sort of made itself available to me to to start to speak on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And of course, like every woman, what I'd really love, you know, I'm so grateful for this opportunity and I'm really, uh, I feel really lucky and uh, fortunate that Penguin Press came to me and wanted to provide me this space because it's such a rare thing. Um, But of course, you know, what I'd really love is to be able to get, you know, past to this part where I have to talk about sort of these handicaps and, and, and things that sort of keep me from doing the work that I just really want to be doing, which is to just be writing about, you know, beautiful content, interesting content, content that is, you know, exists just because I want to make something worth worthy of existing, not necessarily that justifies my existence on this planet. Like, you know, like this book, you know, I feel like there was a little bit of that in this book of like, you know, me having to acknowledge these things so that I can move on and have a creative endeavor that isn't about this, you know? No, no, I, so. I, I understand. You, But you, you could, you know, put down your pen at the end of it and say, okay, I did that. And so yep, exactly. now what is it that you want to do? I mean, I want to keep writing. You know, if mm-hmm. I had my druthers, I would I'd get to spend, you know, the rest of my life having a productive writing career. And, you know, Margaret Wrinkle is a writer whom I really greatly admire and respect. And I think she just writes so beautifully about the experience of living. You know, like today she had a piece in the New York Times about a cat that she hated dying. Like one, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's just, you know, it's just having the opportunity to read a writer who speaks to sort of the mundane and the the normalcy of our lives is I think what's appealed to me about writing mm-hmm. my whole life. Um, I love those kinds of writers and I love to read that kind of work. I would like to you know, wor- start working on some fiction and I'd like to on some, you know, bigger uh, scale projects like screenplays and things like that. You know, that's, that's like my, the rest of my life sort of agenda but that's sort of what I've got my heart set on right now as I'm sort of phasing out of this the work of this memoir and so do you think that you might still write about food or is, is that something you're going to leave behind writing about Did food, you say write about food? Uh-huh. I think I'll probably always feel inclined to include that in some capacity of my work I I would love for that not to be exclusively sort of the the arena I exist within Mm -hmm. um you know I think for a lot of reasons like how many more people do we need right you know waxing poetic (laughs) about how moved they are to go to France and eat cheese like how do we really need more of those essays out in the world like you know is it I'm not you know I'm not suggesting that food writing is sort of getting overwrought in its sort of um, <laughs> effort, but you know I don't know how many 
essays can be written about, you know, your mother affecting you and, you know, all of these things in, in a noodle bowl or, you know what I mean? I, I think it's beautiful and I want people to feel like they can do it. I just don't know how much more of that I have in me. And it's all been genuine up to this point. It's sort of that, that sort of visceral experience of food is, is how I have navigated the last 20 years of my life. Um, I'm not sure that that's how I'm navigating the rest of my life. You know, I'm starting to this, I tell you what, this like lockdown and quarantine has given me sort of permission to remember some things that I um, had to sort of put on hold while I was working so hard in kitchens and cooking for people and uh, developing recipes and, and, you know, doing all the consulting and stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. it's been a real opportunity for me to remember that I actually love to just sit and read poetry and to remember that there's value in, in a poem just because it's, is there on the page, you know? And I think, I think the transition for me between needing to sort of have that really um, industrious usefulness is something I'm really working on. The great thing about food for me is that it's um, like, it's immediately I can see the results, you know, I can, I can say, Oh, I fed somebody that feels useful. I feel like I actually did some work that was important it's different when you're just trying to endeavor a creative project because you have to justify it like for itself. You, you know, Mm -hmm. you you hope that it, it metaphorically feeds somebody, but you're not actually providing sustenance the way you are when you make a loaf of bread. So, you know, I'm kind of trying to work with myself a little bit during this lockdown to, to not always need external, sort of uh, justification for my work. I want that. I want the justification to exist just because I, I have it in me. So that's something I'm working on for this lockdown, giving myself permission to make things just because I think they deserve to be made, not because someone needs me to make it. So in, in that vein, do you feel that you get a lot of satisfaction from the actual act of writing or is it more the result of the writing that is satisfying to you? Um, I bet you there's no writer alive that will tell you that the act of writing is pleasant or (laughs) 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 Uh, it's hard. Uh, I think it's not, it's it's not even necessarily the end result. I think the the, the technically satisfying part of writing is the copy editing, the cutting, the revising, the, the, the really the working the working back after you you know after you write then mm-hmm. you actually do the, the work of editing and I, I feel like that for me is the really uh interesting uh technical part that I can kind of like reason as a craft you know I can I can really sort of get comfortable with that as work the other part of it just feels like torture <laughs> and uh, it's not it's not an easy thing to to, to show up for every day but but you also uh, walk around if you are a writer, you know, I, I don't think you can train to be a writer. I think you either are a writer or you aren't a writer. And if you walk around this world as a writer, your brain is constantly doing the work of a writer. So if you don't, you know, kind of diffuse that through the act of writing, you just sort of become someone that uh, probably becomes a very dysfunctional person who uh, isn't managing <laughs> their their feelings very well. Well, it it seems that what you really are enjoying when you describe the editing process is the more collaborative and interactive part mm-hmm. of writing. I mean, I certainly know that with my books that the process of 
going through it and having someone else look at it who hasn't lived with it every moment for so long really Mm -hmm. makes you see it again in a different way, which is really nice because I can't, I can't think of any time that my writing hasn't been improved by an editor. Oh my gosh. I think that's true of every writer. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, I think having a second and sometimes third set of eyes on your work is exactly what you need. And you really need someone who will look at you and say, you've got to kill this. I know you want it, but you've got to kill it. And, and then you fight, you fight it and then you do it and then you realize, Oh my God, Holy shit. (laughs) I'm so glad this didn't go out into the world like that messy um, and that cluttered. And, and, and I think, you know, for me, the most similar part, um, there is a similarity of like how I work in the kitchen and uh, how I sort of work on the page a little bit, you know, and I didn't realize it until we got to the copy editing phase where then all of a sudden it was me and like a team of editors, you know, mm-hmm. and all of these voices were in the room and it felt very similar to that moment in the kitchen where you've been, you know, trying to create something for the menu and you don't tell anyone and you don't show anyone until that moment where you really want to get it on the menu. And then all of a sudden you've got five voices saying, you got to pare this down. You got to amp this up. You got to move this around. You got to think about this. You're not thinking about this or, you know, no one's ever going to come into one of those meetings saying, this is perfect. Put it on the menu. (laughs) So like that, that to me is really satisfying because I hate, first of all, I am probably an insufferable like I just hate lip service and if you tell me something is good I'm not going to believe it anyway so I need you to just go ahead and tell me what's wrong with it right <laughs> so that I can you know work I don't I don't I don't I'm not here for you to tell me it's good in those kinds of meetings you know I don't need and, and that's one of the beautiful things about professional kitchens once you get to a certain level that I recognize immediately when you get to a certain level of writing with a, a house like like Penguin Press is you get to a room full of professionals and everyone has got their game on and you don't ever have to walk into a room and wonder what anyone is thinking because they will tell you. And then the everyone's end goal is, you know, this very good product. Right. So, uh, right. so it's been really, it's been a journey. It's been really interesting. So tell me, how did you come up with the name? That's <laughs> so funny. I was, we didn't know, we we had a bunch of working titles and I was about a year into writing the book and I was in the kitchen with my husband and I was in one of these moods. We had been, I think we had probably already polished off a couple of bottles of wine and we had music playing and we had already had a big dinner and we were cleaning up the kitchen and I was like, why am I? so hungry again like we just ate a dinner like how am I hungry again and he's like I don't know man I was like I just feel like I'm always hungry I'm just and then I just said it I was like I'm like our lady of perpetual hunger over here (laughs) and and I was like holy shit and I like immediately went and called my editor and I was like that's the title we got it (laughs) that after like bouncing all of these titles around and thought you know possible ideas that was it you you know it's it's I don't know if it's that magical for everyone else or, or that clear for everyone else, but it was very obvious as soon as I hit it, you know, and it, it, mm-hmm. it touched on sort of sort of the the bigger Catholic conversations in the book. And, you know, it does sort of pinch, it pinched uh, a real nerve. So we, we went with it. 
No, I think it's a, it's an intriguing title, and it does really set up a lot of what you talk about in the book, which I, I really like that. And um, New Orleans, which is where we are, where I am, is uh, such a Catholic place. And so it, mm-hmm. we have a lot of, you know, our lady jokes that everybody <laughs> understands whether they're Catholic or not because, uh, you know, um, our lady who helps us when it floods, you know, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and so it, it was just like, oh, that's perfect. That's such a great title. And uh, I really like that. And I also wanted to ask you about the cover, which is absolutely gorgeous. Um so did they take lots of pictures in different sites or is that kind of it was just pictures in that one place to uh Well, so it's an inter- it's actually interesting how the whole cover came to be. I was really did not I was very stubborn and was it was one of our, our biggest, you know, my biggest obstacles. Penguin Press knew what they wanted, knew it was best. Of course they were right, but I was being a stubborn cuss about it and I was like, I don't wanna be on the cover and so much of this book is about Summing my nose at this weird ego, you know, driven male chef world. I don't want to be another chef on the cover of a book. Like, I want this book to be a little more universal. I want this to be about the narrative of women. And I know it's my story, but I'm, I, I think one of the beautiful things about the way women work in the world is that they don't center themselves. And I think there's power in that. And I, and I was really trying to sort of, um, get to the power of how women actually want to move in the world and maneuver in the world and and you know centering myself visually on the cover was just felt counterintuitive to the messaging of the book um i was wrong i can say now i was wrong (laughs) um and some you know something came up there was an image that one of my dearest closest best friends eva Saad, who shot the cover had taken years ago, probably almost a decade ago now, during one of my last Buttermilk Road Sunday suppers. And it's a stunning image that she shot. It was so long ago that it was on one of the first iPhones. Um, And so it was really low res, but it's still this like dynamic and moody and gorgeous uh, picture where my breasts look fucking great. And like, it's just this amazing picture. And she just shot it on her way out of the dinner. And they somehow found it online. They found this picture that Eve had taken all those years ago. And it was it's very flattering. It's really stunning. It's really beautiful. Um, they contacted Eve. I, you know, this was all kind of happening as I was, like, sitting in a corner with my arms crossed going, like, no, we're going to have a different cover. We're not having it. And they're, you know, they just started doing the thing without me realizing I'd come around. And, um they had started to talk with Eve and Eve called me and she's like, do you know about this? And I was like, no, I didn't know about this. She's like, well, they're about to hire me to shoot your cover. And so I, you know, then they weren't being sneaky or underhanded. They just knew what needed to be done. Mm-hmm. And I was having a hard time letting go of my, uh, of my of objections. My yes. <laughs> so they got me there and Eve, you know, because she's one of my best friends really was like, look, man, let's do it. Let's do this exactly how you want it. Um, tell me what you're worried about. We'll fix it. And I said, okay, look, here's what I want. I want to look a little anonymous. I want to, I want this to look timeless and I want it to sort of look like the opposite of like one of these juicy chef memoir. Like, look at me on the cover with my arms crossed and all my tattoos. And I'm here I am with a 
hunk of meat over my penis and you know like I'm just not, like I, I want it to be the opposite of the of the world we've all sort of been enraptured by for the last couple of decades so if we can just do this in a way where you know it's not me you know somehow we're still just uh making I, I think we we eventually kind of just got to the point where we were like let's try to make it anonymous and beautiful and also sort of speak to the narrative in the book and she she nailed it I mean I like when I tell you like and I'm not the easiest person to shoot I don't you know I don't consider myself photogenic or even comfortable in front of the camera um and she just made me so comfortable all day and you know it was it was a really great day and she got a beautiful shot and then you know Penguin Press went on to sort of you know, do all this beautiful filigree around it and find the right lettering. And that was a really fun part of the process. I know. Too. It, so, they made it into a holy card. <laughs> they really did. I mean, they, they, I'm so glad that they didn't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really, really quite lovely. And she caught the timelessness part too really well, which um, I think sometimes is really difficult because I, I think you could look at that photograph 20 years from now and not date it or anything, which is great. Yeah, we were very intentional about that. We removed anything in the kitchen. Um, and that kitchen is the kitchen of an artist in Nashville named Buddy Jackson, who's that was the kitchen that the original photo that was on the iPhone was taken. So we just went back to his kitchen. We removed any clocks, any you know, machinery, anything that, you know, he's got this very interesting, beautiful kitchen as it were anyway. So we just removed anything that, you know, could potentially date the picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I think, I think you, you nailed it. I mean, it's really, really good. And so I am really interested. I'm thinking, you know, maybe you'll write um, the way Ruth Reichel has multiple memoirs about different times of her life. Maybe you'll do something like that too. As you maybe, I mean, there's plenty of material there, it seems. <laughs> 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 but we'll see, you know. I mean, I, I think I would like, you know, memoir was hard enough this first time around in ways that I'm not sure I'm going to be eager to like jump back into the fray of, you know. I mean, there's a lot of personal content, there's a lot of interpersonal relationships that I'm having to sort of, you know really manage and I mean manage in like a very loving way right now you know it's, it's hard it's it's not just difficult to write about your life it's difficult to make sure that you're honoring the people around you and making sure that if you are bringing uh, potentially embarrassing or hard to swallow content to light that you're doing it with some amount of, it was important to me anyway. Maybe this is not true for all people who write memoir, but like it was very important to me to make sure that I wasn't accusatory or um, angry or hurtful towards anyone mm -hmm. um, because relationships are really important to me. And I, I feel like in the bigger picture of, of this, you know, I, I worry culturally that we are forgetting how to preserve and protect relationships and so I was really trying to do a good job of of um, being honest and sincere and truthful while also remembering that these are actual human beings out in the world that I you know have had a life experiences with so that part I think was was <laughs> 
a, so much work that I'm not sure I'd be willing. It sure seems like a field day to be able to write a novel and just, you know, not have to <laughs> make worry. It, make it up. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> about who I'm going to piss off. <laughs> well, so did you, did you actually show them copy beforehand or how did you, how did you manage that? Because I was really struck when I was reading the book that you were seem to be very honest about um, many potential things that I I thought could be uh, problems, especially if you wanted to maintain a relationship with those people. But at the same time, you know, what's the point of writing it if you don't tell those stories? So Mm -hmm. I admired the fact that you were able to balance those two things. But I did wonder when I read them what, what you are doing to maintain those relationships, the ones you want to maintain? That's a great, that's a great question that I wish I would have thought a little bit more about. I mean, like I did, I did, wasn't just, I wasn't completely not thinking about that, but uh, on some level you have to not think about um, how people are going to respond, especially when you're diving deep into uh, especially family politics and things that are really difficult. Um, I think I wish I would have managed people's expectations a little better in hindsight. Um, I can sit here the day before pub day now that my family's got the book in hand Uh and really recognize that I could have done more work not to change the narrative because I do feel like the narrative where it ended up was honest. And uh, even if it was hurtful in some ways, I think I, you know, I, I couldn't have avoided, I didn't even know I was going to end up there. And that's, you know, that's one of the power, powerful things for the person writing the memoir is you end up going to places that you suspect you might end up at. You try actually to not end up at, but it's like a, a, you, your hand gets forced if you're going to do this with any integrity and truth and honesty. And um, there are a couple of places it went that, you know, was hard for me to write. And I think I, I think um, I think the important thing that if, if I'm pretending to give advice to anyone writing a memoir is to just don't expect the the bigger picture to resonate, uh, especially with older generations, uh, necessarily when you're detailing sort of lives that were lived all together. Um, And I think I would have probably just done a little bit of a better job of sort of managing those expectations and that conversation on the front end, because if not, you're going to have to manage it on the back end. And it's, I think, a little more hurtful in that way. Um, I thought I was doing the best I could by it, but, you know, I think that still it probably could have been a little bit, you know, you never know. You don't know. (laughs) You you don't really know how big the fire is going to be until you're walking through it, maybe, I guess. (laughs) um, So it's, I think in that way, am I hungry to write more memoir? Maybe not so much, you know, not, not because I don't think it's valid um, and interesting, but I, I think I'd like to give myself permission to feel a little freer um, from from that emotional labor. There's a lot of emotional labor that is happening around that. So, so we've been talking to Lisa Donovan, the author of Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger. Her book drops tomorrow. So please, it's a it's a wonderful memoir. It's a story of her. Um, exploration, her life, her food life, and all the things that happened to her. And it's absolutely worth the read. It's not only an interesting story, but it's also beautifully written. Thanks for joining me today. 
listening to Tip Thanks of the Tone. Thank you for having me. You're... Thank you so much. This was a great talk. Thank you. We're part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Come visit us at the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.